Hey, welcome to A Better Story Podcast, the very first episode. Uh, let me start by saying I'm really glad that you're here. I'm glad that you are listening in and joining on this, uh, this journey. So I was thinking, where should we start? Where is the best place for us to begin thinking about the things that lead us into a better story? And I thought, why don't we just start at the beginning uh, the beginning of Scripture specifically, why don't we look at the very first couple stories in Scripture in Genesis 1 and 2? Because they are really great examples of what we're going to look at, especially when we look at Scripture, these old ancient stories that I think can lead us into better ways of living. You see, Scripture at its best pulls us towards something. It has a way of pulling us towards love and towards wholeness and to better ways of acting and being in the world. And Genesis 1 and 2 is a really great example of this. But maybe you're thinking that's not always how Scripture has been used, and maybe that's not your experience of Scripture. Because Scripture can also be used in really bad ways, and Scripture at its worst can feel like it's pushing us backwards towards exclusion and hate, and you push us back in the wrong direction of history. And there are different ways that we can maybe know when scripture is being used that way. Number one, we can just see the results of it. You can see when scripture has been used destructively because the environment has been messed up and relationships have been broken and we've hurt each other. But I think we also just intuitively know a little bit when scripture is being used the wrong way. Here's what I mean. We can just sense it in ourselves, specifically with Genesis 1 and 2. I remember a couple of distinct memories where I sort of began to sense that things weren't being used well, that this, these stories weren't being used well. The first one is this. I was, I don't know, maybe nine or 10 years old, and I was being taken to this conference on Genesis and on creationism. And we were sitting in this conference, and there was this guy giving us this big spiel about Genesis and about how... It was uh, the better option if you were pitting it against evolution. And this guy was coming to the end of his presentation, and it was sort of culminating in this moment where we were supposed to have this kind of big takeaway where we understood why Genesis was better than evolution. And he got to his last slide, and his big reveal, his big sort of aha moment was a picture of a platypus. And his point was this, that because platypuses, pus, platyp <laughs> because a platypus existed, therefore evolution can't be right and Genesis is right uh, because a platypus is just such a weird combination of creatures. It has a bill and it has fur and has all sorts of strange stuff. And I remember thinking to myself, this seems weird. This is just like an an odd way to end this presentation. I wasn't very old yet, and so I couldn't really process everything that was happening. But I just remember thinking, this this can't be quite right. I mean, is this really the best we have? Is that because a platypus is a thing, therefore Genesis is correct historically? There's a second time that I remember starting to feel this way about Genesis 1 and 2, and that was when I was in college. I was in my first college biology class. And I knew that eventually we were going to talk about evolution. And I had only sort of read Genesis in a very literal way. And so I was prepping myself to counter this college biology professor. I was going to show him and question him to the point that he sort of caved 
and admitted that evolution was wrong in Genesis 1 and 2 are right. And so when we came around to evolution and the topic of it, my hand shot up pretty quickly and I began these like, you know, probing rapid fire questions that weren't really rooted in a whole lot of knowledge. And I remember feeling really awkward, uh, feeling like I was putting myself out there and trying to convince myself that this was the right thing to do, but just feeling a little bit off about it. Well, here's the deal. I don't think that we need to put ourselves in those weird positions. We don't need to pit ourselves against college biology professors, and we don't need to round up a bunch of 10-year-olds and put them in a room and show them slides of weird-looking animals to show them that Genesis 1 and 2 are right. Because Genesis 1 and 2, I think, are actually trying to lead us into something different, into something better. And so let's check that out. Let's spend a few minutes looking at that. Before, though, we get to where Genesis is pulling us towards, what it's trying to lead us into, it's probably important for us to name the ways in which it has been used to sort of push us backwards and to identify the parts of it that have done that and see how I think they are actually uh, being misused when they're done that way. So let's start uh, with maybe the most common way that Genesis 1 and 2 are used to maybe push us backwards a little bit. Number one, they are often used to pit us against science, to say that you need to choose between the stories in Genesis 1 and 2 and evolution in this way of viewing the world scientifically. And they're done, that is done because Genesis is read literally and historically. But when we look at it, what we begin to understand is that I don't think Genesis 1 and 2 are ever meant to be read historically or scientifically. First off, because science wasn't exactly a thing when Genesis 1 and 2 were written. It was in a sort of pre-scientific time. That doesn't mean that people weren't thinking about the world around them. But what we think about when we think about science and history and our modern standards of science and history just didn't exist yet. And so to read these stories and hold them to our modern standards of science and history is actually to do the stories an injustice and to miss what they're really saying. If we look at the details of the story, I think we can also see that they're meant to actually draw us into a deeper truth than just science and history. Science and history are looking at the literal sort of facts of the world, of how things happened. But the stories in Genesis are actually trying to sort of zoom out or take us to a deeper level and ask questions of why and questions of meaning. Here's a couple examples of that. First off, the name Adam in Genesis wasn't an actual name, like it wasn't, you know, the name like Steve or Jim or Susie. It literally meant human. So when you see the term Adam in the story, when you see the term human, it should sort of like perk our ears up and say like, okay, something bigger is going on here. This isn't just a story about a guy named Adam. This is a story about all of us as human beings. And then when you look at Genesis 1 and you look at seven days of creation, we shouldn't think about like an actual literal seven days of creation. When we look at that and we see the term seven in sort of ancient thinking and in Jewish thinking, the number seven sort of just meant that things were complete. And so it was looking at the story of creation and saying that it is complete and beautiful and wonderful. So I don't think we have to pit science and Genesis against each other. I think that moves us sort of in the wrong direction. Second way that Genesis has been used 
to move us backwards is to justify the abuse of our world and the environment. So there's this part in Genesis 1, the end of it, in verse uh, 26 and then 28 again, where it says that humanity is given authority to rule over animals and sort of over creation. That has been used throughout history to sort of say we can do whatever we want to the world because we have the God-given authority to do it. Well, here's the thing. That passage and those verses uh, do actually say rule over. That's, that's, there's no like nuanced meaning of that. But we should probably think a little more deeply about it. See, what's happening is it's acknowledging something that is actually true. We do have the ability to manipulate and rule over the world. You can see that in the ways that we've done that in making different animals extinct in in greenhouse gas emission, and all sorts of ways that we have affected the planet and effectively ruled over the planet. So this isn't meant to justify whatever we want to do. It's actually a question posed towards us. How do you want to have this sort of rule over the planet? What kind of control, influence do you want to have? What kind of presence do you want to have? So the illusion is towards like a monarch, a king, or a queen, which is what these people would have thought of back then because that's how they structured themselves. And so it was asking, what kind of relationship do you want to have? What kind of authority do you want to have? Do you want to have a loving, mutual one that benefits the world around you and you? Or do you want to be a brutal dictator that manipulates and uses the world around us? So it actually asks us, to think about how we relate to the world and to do it in a way that is benevolent and good and life-giving and mutually beneficial for us and the world around us, not to abuse it and do whatever we want. So third way that these stories can be used to move backwards, that is with gender roles. So there is this section in the second chapter of Genesis that uh, the text says God's going to create a helper for Adam, for this first human, for, for humanity. And throughout uh, history, this has been used to justify some really weird uh, gender roles and, if we're honest, sexism, to say that women are somehow men's helpers. Well, that I think is also a really kind of abuse and misreading of the text. When we look at that word helper, it's not assigning roles to gender or to people. What it's pointing out is a fundamental fact of what it means to be human, and that's that we need each other. Right before that, it says that it's not good to be alone. And so when we see this term helper, it actually means just sort of like a completing factor that you and I need each other, regardless of gender, to complete each other. That's, that's not meant to be like a Jerry Maguire reference, like you complete, complete me. It's not even like a romantic reference. It's just the fact that you and I were meant to be in community with each other. A further point here is that term, the word, the Hebrew word used for helper, is actually mostly used of God after this. So it's specifically used of God whenever Israel and these people get themselves in so much trouble that they're like, oh my gosh, I need a helper. I need someone who can get me out of this mess that I've got myself in. 
And so what we see is that we need each other to survive and to live and to thrive. We're made for community. This isn't about gender roles. It's about just the fundamental fact of what it means to be human and how we need one another. So those are some ways in which these stories have been used to push us backwards. And like I said, I don't think that that's what they were ever meant to do. I think they're meant to pull us forward and pull us towards better ways of living. So how are they meant to do that? Well, let's look at uh, the stories of Genesis. And I say stories because there are actually two different stories of Genesis in Genesis. There's Genesis 1 and there's Genesis 2, and they're actually two different creation accounts. So let's look at them separately. But first, let's talk about the context of what's going on when these stories are being written down and told. So like a lot of ancient stories, these stories were probably originally told around campfires and passed down from generation to generation. They were most likely written down when Israel, this group of people who were writing them and telling them, were in exile. They were no longer independent. They were being ruled over by a bunch of different people throughout their history. And somewhere in there, it seems like it was probably hard for them to maintain their identity, to stay grounded in what they believed to be true about the world and about themselves. And so they began to write down these stories and tell these stories to reground them in some really deep truths that I think are actually really beautiful that still apply to us today. So Genesis 1 is the first story in here. Genesis 1 is this sort of like really systematic, ordered understanding of creation where there are these six distinct time periods where things are laid out in an orderly manner. And then the seventh one happens to be uh, rest. And so we find that rest is a part of the rhythms of life. But to understand the story, you have to also see it against the backdrop of other similar stories that were going around that made different claims that were trying to, to do different things in the lives of community. Specifically, there was an, one other kind of main competing story. And when we look at this story against the backdrop of these other stories, we see a really important difference. We see that Genesis 1 is one of, if not the only, ancient stories at this time it talks about creation coming out of peace, out of stillness, not out of violence. You see, in all of these other stories, creation happened and the world was formed out of violent conflict. Let me give you an example. There was this really common story at the time about the creation of the world that involved two sort of gods. They were called Marduk and Tiamat. And Marduk and Tiamat were rivals. They were fighting to see who was going to be sort of the most high supreme god and ruler of the universe. And so they were going back and forth and they're in this like epic battle against each other. And it culminates where they meet each other on the battlefield. And Marduk confronts Tiamat. And this is going to get kind of disgusting. Marduk rips open Tiamat's stomach and eventually chops Tiamat in half. And after that, Marduk takes one part of Tiamat and makes the earth and the other part of Tiamat and makes the sky. And that's how the world was created in this violent, chaotic mess in a bloodbath. And what that did is that said something about the world. It looked around at the world as it was at that time, which was violent and chaotic and bloody and still is today. And said, so that's how the world is meant to be. At the heart of it, 
the world is violent and bloody and chaotic. But the account in Genesis 1 is different. It wasn't justifying any current violent behavior. It was trying to envision the world differently. as a place of peace and wholeness where rest was possible. It imagined a rhythm of life and a vision of the world that was much different from the violence that was occurring around them. It was trying to pull this group of people into a better way of living in the world, in a way that fostered peace and wholeness and rest. So when we look at Genesis 1, that is what Genesis is trying to do. It's trying to foster this way of seeing the world differently. So what about the second story in Genesis 1 and 2? Genesis 2 is sort of this like zoomed in creation account where God is said to stoop down into the earth and scoop up dust and mud and form humanity and then breathe life into humanity. Well, like Genesis 1, this was meant to be read against the backdrop of other stories, other really similar stories. So you can look at ancient stories at this time and see that this Genesis story is not entirely unique. There are actually tons and tons of stories where humanity is created by a god scooping down and forming humanity out of dust and clay. But then what we find is that in these stories, there are sort of like layers of gods where there's like a high god and then some lower gods. And in each of these stories, the most high god is the one who forms humanity. But when it comes time to breathe breath, divine breath, into humanity, that high god then passes off that clay, that figure, to a lower god. So there's this like inherent distance between God, the creator, the source of life, and humanity. But in Genesis 2, there's no distance. God, the creator of the universe, the source of love and of life, forms humanity. And then instead of passing off that figure, that lifeless figure, God stoops down and breathes life, divine breath, into it. So what is happening is, number one, it's acknowledging a reality that I think you and I both know that we are this really interesting mix of dust and divinity, that we are capable of living into really messy, crappy ways of hurting one another, of living out of our wounds, out of selfishness. But then we also are infused with the breath of the divine. We are capable of amazing acts of creativity and hope and love and ingenuity. And so what the story is doing is trying to help us see that each person around us is infused with the breath of the divine. That when I look at someone else, I have to see the breath of God in them. That's a hard thing to do. It's an especially hard thing to do right now in our political climate where things seem all over the place. Where it's easy for me to look at a Facebook post or a picture or something that someone posts and dehumanize them. But behind that, in each of us, there is a person that is infused with the breath of God, and we are encouraged to live in a way that acknowledges that, that treats the people around us as these divinely infused creatures. So I think we need to redefine biblical creationism. I was always taught that biblical creationism had to do with the scientific and historic understanding of Genesis 1 and 2, of reading it 
literally, and then pitting it against other things, against science. But if we look at what these stories are actually doing, they are trying to create something in us. They're trying to pull us towards a way of living. They're trying to pull us towards a way of living that is inherently peaceful. A way that sees other people as infused with the breath of the divine. So by all means, let's defend biblical creationism, but let's make sure that it's the creationism that's actually found in the Bible. The kind that leads us into more peaceful, life-giving ways of relating to one another. So I hope that you can do that. I hope that you can begin to live into that, that these stories challenge you to see the world differently, to treat other people differently as infused with the breath of God. Peace, friends. Have a good one. Hey, one more quick thing. A big thanks to Light Theory, a.k.a. Joe Ham Gary, for the intro and outro music. If you want to listen to more of Light Theory's music, check out the link in the show notes.